Welcome to Caldi's Corner. We are continuing our reading of World War Z by Max Brooks. This is Reading 2. Meteora, Greece. The monasteries are built into the steep, inaccessible rocks, some buildings sitting perched atop high, almost vertical columns. While originally an attractive refuge from the Ottoman Turks, it later proved just as secure from the living dead. Post-war staircases, mostly metal or wood, and all easily retractable, catered the growing influx of both pilgrims and tourists. Meteora has become a popular destination for both groups in recent years. Some seek wisdom and spiritual enlightenment. Some simply search for peace. Stanley MacDonald is one of the latter. A veteran of almost every campaign across the expanse of his native Canada, he first encountered the living dead during a different war. When the 3rd Battalion of Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry was involved in drug interdiction operations in Kyrgyzstan. Please, don't confuse us with the American Alpha teams. This was long before their deployment, before the Great Panic, before the Israeli self-quarantine. This was even before the major public outbreak in Cape Town. This was just at the beginning of the spread, before anyone knew anything about what was coming. Our mission was strictly conventional. Opium and hash the primary export crop of terrorists around the world. That's all we'd ever encountered in that rocky wasteland. Traitors and thugs and locally hired muscle. That's all we expected. That's all we were ready for. The cave entrance was easy to find. We'd tracked it back from the blood trail leading to the caravan. Right away, we knew something was wrong. There were no bodies. Rival tribes always left their victims laid out and mutilated as a warning to others. There was plenty of blood, blood and bits of brown rotting flesh. But the only corpses we found were the pack mules. They'd been brought down, not shot, by what looked like wild animals. Their bellies were torn out and large bite wounds covered their flesh. We guessed it had to be wild dogs. Packs of those damn things roamed the valleys, big and nasty as Arctic wolves. What was most puzzling was the cargo, still in their saddlebags, or just scattered around the bodies. Now, even if this wasn't a territorial hit, even if it was a religious or tribal revenge killing, no one just abandons 50 kilos of pr prime raw bad brown or perfectly good assault rifles or expensive personal trophies like watches, mini-disc players, and GPS locators. The blood trail ran up the mountain path from the massacre in the Wadi. A lot of blood. Anyone who lost that much wouldn't be getting up again. Only somehow he did. He hadn't been treated. There were no other track marks. From what we could tell, this man had run, bled, fallen face down. We could still see his bloody face mark imprinted in the sand. Somehow, without suffocating, without bleeding to death, he'd laid there for some time, then just gotten up again and started walking. These new tracks were very different from the old. They were slower, closer together. His right foot was dragging, clearly why he'd lost his shoe, an old, worn-out Nike high top. The drag marks were sprinkled with fluid. Not blood, not human, but droplets of hard, black, crusted ooze that none of us recognized. We followed those and the drag marks to the entrance of the cave. There was no opening fire, no reception of any kind. We found the tunnel entrance unguarded and wide open. Immediately, we began to see bodies, men killed by their own booby traps. They looked like they'd been trying, running, to get out. Beyond them in the first chamber, we saw our first evidence of a one-sided firefight, one-sided because only one wall of the cavern was pockmarked by small arms. 
Opposite that wall were the shooters. They'd been torn apart. Their limbs, their bones shredded and gnawed, some still clutching their weapons, one of those severed hands with an old Makarov still in his grip. The hand was missing a finger. I found it across the room, along with the body of another unarmed man who'd been hit over a hundred times. Several rounds had taken off the top of his head. The finger was still stuck between his teeth. Every chamber told a similar story. We found smashed barricades, discarded weapons. We found more bodies or pieces of them. Only intact ones died from headshots. We found meat, chewed, pulped flesh, bulging from their throats and stomachs. You could see by the blood trails, the footprints, the shell casings, and pockmarks that the entire battle had originated from the infirmary. We discovered small cots, all bloody. At the end of the room, we found a headless, I'm guessing, doctor, lying on the dirt floor next to a cot with soiled sheets and clothes and an old left-footed, worn-out Nike high top. The last tunnel we checked had collapsed from the use of a booby trap demolition charge. A hand was sticking out of the limestone. It was still moving. I re reacted from the gut, leaned forward and grabbed the hand, felt that grip, like steel, almost crushed my fingers. I pulled back, tried to get away. It wouldn't let me go. I pulled harder, dug my feet in. First the arm came free, then the head, the torn face, wide eyes and gray lips, then the other hand grabbing my arm and squeezing. Then came the shoulders. I fell back, the thing's top half coming with me. The waist down was still jammed under the rocks, still connected to the upper torso by a line of entrails. It was still moving, still clawing at me, trying to pull my arm into its mouth. I reached for my weapon. The burst was angled upward, connecting just under and behind the chin and spraying its brains across the ceiling above us. I'd been the only one in the tunnel when it happened. I was the only witness. Exposure to unknown chemical agents. That's what they told me back in Edmonton. That or an adverse reaction to our own prophylactic medication. They threw in a healthy dose of PTSD for good measure. I just needed rest. Rest and long-term evaluation. Evaluation. That's what happens when it's your own side. It's only interrogation when it's the enemy. They teach you how to resist the enemy. How to protect your mind and spirit. They don't teach you how to resist your own people, especially people who think they're trying to help you see the truth. They didn't break me. I broke myself. I wanted to believe them. I wanted them to help me. I was a good soldier, well-trained, experienced. I knew what I could do to my fellow human beings and what they could do to me. I thought I was ready for anything. Who in his right mind could have be ready for this? Amazon Rainforest, Brazil. I arrived blindfolded so as not to reveal my host's location. Outsiders call them the Yanomami, the fierce people, and it is unknown whether this supposedly warlike nature, or the fact that their new village hangs suspended from the tallest trees, was what allowed them to weather this crisis as well, if not better, than mo the most industrialized nations. It is not clear whether Fernando Oliveira, the emaciated drug-addicted white man from the edge of the world, is their guest, mascot, or prisoner. I was still a doctor, that's what I told myself. Yes, I was rich and getting richer all the time, but at least my success came from performing necessary medical procedures. I wasn't just slicing and dicing little teenage noses or sewing Sudanese pintos on some shiboy pop divas. I was still a doctor. I was still helping people. 
And if it was so immoral to the self-righteous hypocritical North, why did their citizens keep coming? The package arrived from the airport about an hour before the patient, packed in ice and a plastic picnic cooler. Hearts are extremely rare. Not like livers or skin tissue, and certainly not like kidneys, which after the presumed consent law was passed, you could get from almost any hospital morgue in the country. Was it tested? For what? In order to test for something, you have to know what you're looking for. We didn't know about walking plague then. We were concerned with conventional ailments. Hepatitis or HIV AIDS. We didn't even have time to test for those. Why is that? Because the flight had already taken so long. Organs can't be kept on ice forever. We're already pushing our luck with this one. Where'd it come from? China, most likely. My broker operated out of Macau. We trusted him. His record was solid. When he assured us that the package was clean, I took him at his word. I had to. He knew the risks involved. So did I. So did the patient. Herr Muller, in addition to his conventional heart ailments, was cursed with the extremely rare genetic defect of dextrocardia with situs inversus. His organs lay on the exact opposite position. The liver was on the left side, the heart entry rise on the right, and so on. You see the unique situation we we're facing. We couldn't have just transplanted a conventional heart and turned it backward. It just doesn't work that way. We needed a fresh, healthy heart from a donor with exactly the same condition. Where else but China could we find that kind of luck? It was luck. <laughs> and political expediency. I told my broker what I needed, gave him the specifics, and sure enough, three weeks later I received an email simply titled, We have a match. So you performed the operation? I assisted. Dr. Silva performed the actual procedure. He was a prestigious heart surgeon who worked in the top cases at the hospital Israelita Albert Einstein in Sao Paulo. Arrogant B for even for a cardiologist. Killed my ego to have to work with under that prick. Treating me like I was a first year res resident. What was I going to do? Herr Muller needed a new heart and my beach house needed a new herbal jacuzzi. Herr Muller never came out of the anesthesia. As he lay in the recovery room, barely minutes after closing, his symptoms began to appear. His temperature, pulse rate, oxygen sat. I was worried, and it must have tickled my more experienced colleague. He told me it was either a common reaction to the immunosuppressant medication or the simple expected complications of an overweight, unhealthy 67-year-old man who'd just gone through one of the most traumatic procedures in modern medicine. I'm surprised he didn't pat me on the head, the prick. He told me to go home, take a shower, get some sleep, maybe call a girl or two, relax. He'd stay and watch him, call me if there was any change. Oliveira pushes his lips angry and chews another wad of his mysterious leaves at his side. What was I supposed to think? Maybe it was the drugs, the OKT3. Maybe I was just being a worrier. This was my first heart transplant. What did I know? Still. It bothered me so much that the last thing I wanted to do was sleep. So, I did what any good doctor should do when his patient is suffering. I hit the town. I danced, I drank, I had salaciously indecent things done to me by who knows who or what. I wasn't even sure it was my phone vibrating the first couple of times. It must have been at least an hour before I finally picked up. Graciela, my receptionist, was in a real state. She told me that Herr Muller had slipped into a coma an hour before. I was in my car before she could finish the sentence. It was a 30-minute drive back to the clinic, and I cursed both Silva and myself every second of the way. So I did have reason to be concerned. So I was right. Ego, you could say. Even though to be right meant dire consequences for me as well, I still relish tarnishing the invincible Silva's reputation. I arrived to find Graziella trying to comfort a hysterical Rossi, one of my nurses. The poor girl was inconsolable. I gave her a good one across the cheek. 
That calmed her down and asked her what was going on. Why were there spots of blood on their uniform? Where was Dr. Silva? Why were some of the other patients out of their rooms? And what the hell was that damn banging noise? She told me that Herr Muller had flatlined suddenly and expectedly, or unexpectedly. She explained that they'd been trying to revive him when Herr Muller had opened his eyes and bitten Dr. Silva on the hand. The two of them struggled. Rosie tried to help, but was almost bitten herself. She left Silva, ran from the room, and locked the door behind her. They almost laughed. It was so ridiculous. Maybe Superman had slipped up, misdiagnosed him, if that was possible. Maybe he'd just risen from the bed and in a stupor had tried to grab onto Dr. Silva to steady himself. There had to be a reasonable explanation. And yet, there was blood on her uniform and the muffled noise from Herr Muller's room. I went back to the car for my gun. Much more to calm Graziella and Rosif than for myself. You carried a gun? I lived in Rio. What do you think I carried, my Pinto? I went back to Herr Muller's room. I knocked several times. I heard nothing. I whispered his and Silva's name. No one responded. I noticed blood seeping out from under the door. I entered and found it covering the floor. Silva was lying in the far corner, Muller crouching over him with his fat, pale, hairy back to me. I can't remember how I got his attention. Whether I called his name, uttered a swear, or did anything at all but just stand there. Muller turned to me. Bits of bloody meat falling from his open mouth. I saw that his steel sutures had been partially pried open and a thick black gelatinous fluid oozed from the incision. He got shakily to his feet, lumbering slowly toward me. I raised my pistol, aiming it at his new heart. It was a desert eagle, Israeli, large and showy, which is why I'd chosen it. I'd never fired it before, thank God. I wasn't ready for the recoil. The round went wild, literally blowing his head off. Lucky, that's all. This lucky fool standing there with a smoking gun and a stream of warm urine running down the leg. Now it was my turn to get slapped several times by Graziella before I came to my senses and telephoned the police. Were you arrested? Are you crazy? These were my partners. How do you think I was able to get my homegrown organs? How do you think I was able to take care of this mess? They're very good at that. They helped explain to my other patients that a homicidal maniac had broken into the clinic and killed both Herr Muller and Dr. Silva. They also made sure that none of the staff said anything to contradict that story. What about the bodies? They listed Silva as the victim of a probable carjacking. I don't know where they put the body. Maybe some ghetto side street in the city of God. A drug score gone bad just to give the story more credibility. I hope they just burned him or buried him deep. Do you think he... I don't know. His brain was intact when he died. If he wasn't in a body bag, the ground was soft enough, how long would it have taken to dig out? And Mr. Muller? No explanation. Not to his widow, not to the Austrian embassy, just another kidnapped tourist who'd been careless in a dangerous town. I don't know if Frau Muller ever believed that story, or if she ever tried to investigate further. She probably never realized how damn lucky she was. Why was she lucky? Are you serious? What if he hadn't reanimated in my clinic? What if he'd managed to make it all the way home? Is that possible? Of course it is. Think about it. Because the infection started in the heart, the virus had direct access to a circulatory system, so it probably reached his brain seconds after it was implanted. Now you take another organ, a liver, or a kidney, or even a section of grafted skin. That's going to take a lot longer, especially if the virus is only present in small amounts. But the donor doesn't have to be fully reanimated. What if he's just newly infected? The organ may not be completely saturated. It might only have an infinitesimal trace. 
you put that organ in another body, it might take days, weeks, before it partially works its way out into the bloodstream. By that point, the patient might be well on the way to recovery, happy and healthy and living a regular life. But whoever is removing the organ may not know what he's dealing with. I didn't. These were the very early stages when nobody knew anything yet. Even if they did know, like elements in the Chinese army, you want to talk about immoral. Years before the outbreak, they'd been making millions on organs from executed political prisoners. You think something like a little virus is going to make them stop sucking that golden tit? But how you remove the heart not long after the victims died. Maybe even while he's still alive. They used to do that, you know. Remove living organs to ensure their freshness, pack it on ice, put it on a plane for Rio. China used to be the largest export of human organs on the world market. Who knows how many infected corneas, infected pituitary glands, mother of God, who knows how many infected kidneys they pumped into the global market. And that's just the organs. You want to talk about all the donated eggs from political prisoners, the sperm, the blood? You think immigration was the only way infections plagued the planet? Not all the initial outbreaks were Chinese nationals. Can you explain all those stories of people suddenly dying from unexplained causes and then reanimating without ever having been, been bitten? Why did so many outbreaks begin in hospitals? Illegal Chinese immigrants weren't going to hospitals. Do you know how many thousands of people got illegal organ transplants in those early years leading up to the Great Panic? Even if 10% of them were infected. Even 1%. Do you have any proof of this theory? No. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. When I think about how many transplants I performed, all those patients from Europe, the Arab world, even the self-righteous United States. A few of you Yankees asked where your new kidney or pancreas was coming from. Be it a slum kid from the city of God or some unlucky student in a Chinese political prison. You didn't know. You didn't care. You just signed your traveler's checks and went under the knife and then went home to Miami or New York or wherever. Did you ever try to track these patients down? Warn them? No, I didn't. I was trying to recover from a scandal rebuild my reputation, my client base, my bank account. I wanted to forget what happened, not investigate it further. By the time I realized the danger, I was scratching at my front door. Bridgetown Harbor, Barbados. West Indies Federation. I was told to expect a tall ship, although the sails of I.S. Infingo refer to the four vertical wind turbines rising from her sleek Tremarin hull. When coupled with banks of PM or proton exchange membrane, fuel cells, a technology that converts seawater into electricity, it is easy to see why the prefix I.S. stands for infinity ship. Hailed as the undisputed future of maritime transport, it is still rare to see one sailing under anything but a government flag. The Mfingo is pri privately owned and operated. Jacob Nyanthi is her captain. I was born around the same time as the new post-apartheid South Africa. In those euphoric days, the new government not only promised the democracy of one man, one vote, but employment and housing to the entire country. My father thought that meant immediately. He didn't understand these things were long-term goals to be achieved after years, generations of hard work. He thought if we abandoned our tribal homeland and relocated to a city, there would be a brand new house and high-paying job just sitting there, waiting for us. My father was a simple man, a day laborer. I can't blame him for his lack of formal education, his dream for a better life for his family. And so we settled in Kilisha, one of the four main townships outside of Cape Town. It was a life of grinding, 
hopeless, humiliating poverty. It was my childhood. The night it happened, I was walking home from the bus stop. It was around 5 a.m. and I'd just finished my shift waiting tables at the TGI Fridays at Victoria Wharf. It had been a good night. The tips were big. News from the Tri-Nations was enough to make any South African feel 10 feet tall. The Springboks were trouncing the All Blacks again. Maybe those thoughts were what distracted me at first. Maybe it was simply being so knackered. But I felt my body instinctively react before I consciously heard the shots. Gunfire was not unusual. Not in my neighborhood. Not in those days. One man, one gun, that was the slogan of life in Kilisha. Like a combat veteran, you develop almost genetic survival skills. Mine were razor sharp. I crouched, tried to triangulate the sound, and at the same time look for the hardest surface to hide behind. Most of the homes were just makeshift shanties, wood scraps or corrugated tin or just sheets of plastic fastened to barely standing beams. Fire ravaged those lean-tos at least once a year, and bullets could pass through them as easily as open air. I sprinted and crouched behind a barbershop, which had been constructed from a car-sized shipping container. It wasn't perfect, but it would do for a few seconds, long enough to hole up and wait for the shooting to die down. Only, it didn't. Pistols, shotguns, and that clatter you never forget. The kind that tells you someone has a Kalashnikov. This was lasting much too long to be just be an ordinary gang row. Now were there screams and shouts. I began to smell smoke. I heard the stirrings of a crowd. I peeked out from around the corner. Dozens of people, most of them in their nightclothes, all shouting, Run! Get out of here there! They're coming! House lamps were lighting all around me, faces poking out of shanties. What's going on here? they asked. Who's coming? Those were the younger faces. The older ones, they just started running. They had a different kind of survival instinct. An instinct born in a time when they were slaves in their own country. In those days, everyone knew who they were. And if they were ever coming... All you could do was run and pray. Did you run? I couldn't. My family and my mother and my two little sisters lived only a few doors down from Radio Zimboleni Station, exactly where the mob was fleeing from. I wasn't thinking. I was stupid. I should have doubled back around, found an alley or a quiet street. I tried to wade through the mob, pushing in the opposite direction. I thought ah, I could stay along the sides of the shanties. I was knocked into one, into one of the plastic walls that wrapped around me as the whole structure collapsed. I was trapped. I couldn't breathe. Someone ran over me, smashed my head into the ground. I shook myself free, wriggled, and rolled out into the street. I was still on my stomach when I saw them. Ten or fifteen, silhouetted against the fires of the burning shanties. I couldn't see their faces, but I could hear them moaning. They were slouching steadily toward me, with their arms raised. I got to my feet. My head swam. My body ached all over. Instinctively, I began to withdraw, backing into the doorway of the closest shack. Something grabbed me from behind, pulled at my collar, tore the fabric. I spun, ducked, and kicked hard. He was large, larger and heavier than me by a few kilos. Black fluid ran down the front of his white shirt. A knife protruded from his chest, jammed between the ribs and buried to the hilt. A scrap of my collar, which was, was clenched between his teeth. He growled. He lunged. I tried to dodge. He grabbed my wrist. I felt a crack and pain shot through my body. I dropped to my knees, tried to roll, maybe trip him up. My hand came up against a heavy cooking pot. I grabbed it and swung hard. It smashed into his face. I hit him again and again, bashing his skull until the bones split open and the brain spilled out across my feet. He slumped over. I freed myself just as another one appeared in the entrance. This time, the structure's flimsy nature worked to my advantage. I kicked the back wall open, slinking out and bringing the whole hut down in the process. I ran. 
I didn't know where I was going. It was a nightmare of shacks and fire and grabbing hands all racing past me. I ran through a shanty where a woman was hiding in the corner, who two children huddled against her, crying. Come with me, I said. Please come, we have to go. I held up my hands and moved closer to her. She moved her children, she pulled her children back, brandishing a sharpened screwdriver. Her eyes were wide, scared. I could hear sounds behind me, smashing through shanties, knocking them over as they came. I switched from Sosha to English. Please, I begged, you have to run. I reached for her, but she stabbed my hand. I left her there. I didn't know what else to do. She's still in my memory. When I sleep, or maybe close my eyes sometimes. Sometimes she's my mother, and the crying children are my sisters. I saw a bright light up ahead, shining through the cracks in the shanties. I ran as hard as I could. I tried to call to them. I was out of breath. I crashed through the wall of a shack, and suddenly I was in open ground. The headlights were blinding. I felt something slam into my shoulder. I think I was out before I even hit the ground. I came to in a bed at Groot Schur Hospital. I'd never seen the inside of a recovery ward like this. It was so clean and white. I thought I might be dead. The medication, I'm sure, helped that feeling. I never tried any kind of drugs before, never even touched a drink of alcohol. I didn't want to end up like so many in my neighborhood, like my father. All my life I'd fought to stay clean, and now the morphine or whatever they had pumped into my veins was delicious. I didn't care about anything. I didn't care when they told me the police had shot me in the shoulder. I saw the man in the bed next to me frantically wheeled out as soon as his breathing stopped. I didn't even care when I overheard them talking about the outbreak of rabies. Who was talking about it? I don't know. Like I said, I was high as the stars. I just remember voices in the hallway outside my ward, loud voices angrily arguing. That wasn't rabies, one of them yelled. Rabies doesn't do that to people. Then something else. Then, well, what the hell do you suggest? We've got 15 downstairs right here. Who knows how many more are still out there? It's funny. I go over that conversation all the time in my head. What I should have thought, felt, done. It was a long time before I sobered up again before I woke up and faced the nightmare. Tel Aviv, Israel. Jurgen Warmbrunn has a passion for Ethiopian food, which is our reason for meeting at a Felicia restaurant his bright pink skin and white unruly eyebrows that match his Einstein hair, he might be mistaken for a crazed scientist or college professor. He is neither, although never acknowledging which Israeli intelligence service he was, and possibly still is employed by, he openly admits that at one point he could be called a spy. Most people don't believe something can happen until it already has. It's not stupidity or weakness, it's just human nature. I don't blame anyone for not believing. I don't claim to be smarter or better than them. Guess what it really comes down to is the randomness of birth. I happen to be born into a group of people who live in constant fear of extinction. It's part of our identity, part of our mindset, and it has taught us through horrific trial and error to always be on our guard. The first warning I had of the plague was from our friends and customers over in Taiwan. They were complaining about our new software decryption program. Apparently, it was failing to decode some emails from PRC sources, or at least decoding them so poorly that the text was unintelligible. I suspected the problem might not be the software, but the translated messages themselves. The mainland reds, well, I guess they weren't really reds anymore, but what do you want from an old man? The reds had a nasty habit of using too many computers from too many different generations and countries. 
Before I suggested this theory to Taipei, I thought it might be a good idea to review the scrambled messages myself. I was surprised to find that the characters themselves were perfectly decoded, but the text itself, it all had to do with a new viral outbreak that first eliminated its victim, then reanimated its corpse into some kind of homicidal berserker. Of course, I didn't believe this was true, especially because only a few weeks later, the Taiwan Strait began, and that crisis, any messages dealing with rampaging corpses abruptly ended. I suspected a second layer of encryption, a code within a code. That was pretty standard procedure, going back to the first days of human communication. Of course, the Reds didn't mean actual dead bodies. It had to be a new weapon system or ultra-secret war plan. I let the matter drop. Tried to forget about it. Still, as one of your great national heroes used to say, my spider sense was tingling. Not long afterward, at the reception for my daughter's wedding, I found myself speaking to one of my son-in-law's Hebrews from professors from Hebrew University. The man was a talker, and he'd had a little too much to drink. He was rambling about how his cousin was doing some kind of work in South Africa, and I told him some stories about golems. You know about the golem, the old legend about a rabbi who breathes life into an inanimate statue. Mary Shelley stole the idea for her book Frankenstein. I didn't say anything at first, just listened. Man went on blathering about how these golems weren't made from clay, nor were they docile and obedient. As soon as he mentioned reanimating human bodies, I asked for the man's number. It turned out he had been in Cape Town on one of those adrenaline tours. Shark feeding, I think it was. Ugh. Apparently, the shark had obliged him, right in the tuchus, which is why they'd been he'd been recovering at Groot Sher when the first victims from Kalisha Township were brought in. He hadn't seen any of these cases firsthand, but the staff had told him enough stories to fill my old dictaphone. I then presented his stories, along with those decrypted Chinese emails, to my superiors. And this is where I directly benefited from the unique circumstances of our precarious security. In October of 1973, when the Arab sneak attack almost drove us into the Mediterranean, we had all the intelligence in front of us, all the warning signs. We had simply dropped the ball. Never considered the possibility of an all-out coordinated conventional assault from several nations, certainly not on our holiest of holidays. Call it stagnation. Call it rigidity. Call it an unforgivable herd mentality. Imagine a group of people, all staring at writing on a wall, everyone congratulating one another on reading the words correctly. But behind that group is a mirror whose image shows the writing's true message. No one looks at the mirror. No one thinks it's necessary. Well... After almost allowing the Arabs to finish what Hitler started, we realized that not only was that mirror image necessary, but it must forever be our national policy. From 1973 onward, if nine intelligence analysts came to the same conclusion, it was the duty of the 10th to disagree. No matter how unlikely or far-fetched a possibility might be, one must always dig deeper. If a neighbor's nuclear plan might be used to make weapons-grade plutonium, you dig. If a dictator was rumored to be building a cannon so big it could fire anthrax shells across whole countries, you dig. If there was even the slightest chance that dead bodies were being reanimated as ravenous killing machines, you dig and dig until you strike the absolute truth. And that is what I did. I dug. At first, it wasn't easy. With China out of the picture, the Taiwan crisis put an end to any intelligence gathering. I was left with very few sources of information. A lot of it was chaff, especially on the internet. Zombies from space and Area 51, which your country's fetish over Area 51 anyway. After a while, I started to uncover more useful data. Cases of rabies similar to Cape Town. It wasn't called African rabies until later. I uncovered the psychological evaluations of some Canadian mountain troops recently returned from Kyrgyzstan. 
found the blog records of a Brazilian nurse who told her friends all about the murder of a heart surgeon. The majority of my information came from the World Health Organization. The UN is a bureaucratic masterpiece. So many nuggets of valuable data buried in mountains of unread reports. Found incidents all over the world, all of them dismissed with plausible explanations. These cases allowed me to piece together a cohesive mosaic of this new threat. The subjects in question were indeed dead. They were hostile, and they were undeniably spreading. I also made one very encouraging discovery, how to terminate their, their existence. Going for the brain. <laughs> oh, you talk about it today as if it's some feat of magic, like holy water or a silver bullet. But why wouldn't the destruction of the brain be the only way to annihilate these creatures? Isn't it the only way to annihilate us as well? You mean human beings? Mm-hmm. Isn't that all we are? Just a brain kept alive by a complex and vulnerable machine we call the body? The brain cannot survive if just one part of the machine is destroyed, or even deprived of such necessities as food or oxygen. That is the only measurable difference between us and the undead. Their brains do not require a support system to survive, so it is necessary to attack the organ itself. His right hand, in the shape of a gun, rises to touch his temple. A simple solution. But only if we recognize the problem. Given how quickly the plague was spreading, I thought it might be prudent to seek confirmation from foreign intelligence circles. Paul Knight had been a friend of mine for a long time, going all the way back to Entebbe. The idea to use a double of a men's black Mercedes, that was him. Paul had retired from government service right before his agency's reforms and gone to work for a private consulting firm in Bethesda, Maryland. When I visited him at his home, I was shocked to find not only had he been working on the very same project, on his own time, of course, but that his file was almost as thick and heavy as mine. We sat up the whole night reading each other's findings. None of us spoke. I don't think we were even conscious of each other. The world around us, anything except the words before our eyes. We finished almost at the same time, just as the sun began to lighten in the east. Paul turned the last page, then looked at me and said very matter-of-factly, This is pretty bad, huh? I nodded. So did he. Then followed up with, So what are we going to do about it? And that is how the Wormbrung Night Report was written. I wish people would stop calling it that. There were 15 other names on that report. Virologists, intelligence operatives, military analysts, journalists, even one UN observer who'd been monitoring the elections in Jakarta when the first outbreak hit Indonesia. Everyone was an expert in his or her field. Everyone had come to their own similar conclusions before ever being contacted by us. Our report was just under 100 pages long. It was concise. It was fully comprehensive. It was everything we thought we needed to make sure this outbreak never reached epidemic proportions. I know a lot of credit has been heaped upon the South African war plan, and deservedly so. But if more people had read our report and worked to make its recommendations a reality, that plan would have never needed to exist. But some people did read and follow your report. Your own government. Barely. And just look at the cost. <laughs>